Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And today I have uh, Dan Murray, who is the Deputy CIO for EFG. So Daniel, uh, welcome back. And, and you're in Jordan at the moment. Uh, I am indeed enjoying the pleasures of this beautiful country. Uh, but very pleased to be joining on the podcast today, Mose. This week is going to be a, a relatively light podcast. What we're going to try and do is just talk about the roundup for markets as they stand at the end of Q3, as at the end of September, and then really sort of focus on Q4 on the uh, 3rd of October here. On Monday, 3rd of October, the uh, markets are actually um, up uh, 2% or so. So hopefully... Uh, we are looking for recoveries in Q4 um, from the tough times in uh, or tough times so far on a year-to-date basis. So uh, very quickly, stock markets are down roughly around 23% on the year-to-date basis. Um, S&P 500 is t- down 24.8. Uh, Russell 2000 is similar, down about 25.9. And values outperform growth. Growth is around down around 31% on a year-to-date basis, although certainly in Q3, um, growth outperformed value by roughly around 6% uh, on a relative basis in in Q3. So um, uh, in terms of Europe, down around 22.8%. FTSE only down 6.6% uh, as a really result of the weak pound that is helping those uh, exporters. Uh, the Swiss market is down 20%. Japan, another one that's benefiting from weak currencies that are helping um, those international earnings. Uh, down around 7.8% on a year-to-date basis, so down around 65 for September. Um, moving then on to Asia, Hang Seng's down around 26, so really suffered very heavily in, in September, down 13.7%. Uh, and that, I think, has really come through as a result of COVID fears, worry about the Chinese real estate areas, as well as um, other challenges um, around um, you know, communication of policy. So that certainly has been a, a, a tough ask so far in September. Uh, moving now on to the emerging markets, Brazil is actually up half percent uh, and actually also doing pretty well today, up around 4.3% after the election, uh, first round of election between Lula and Bolsonaro, which was a much closer affair, which uh, certainly helped. Uh, moving on to fixed income markets, uh, the Barclays AG is down 24.5, so it's been very, very brutal uh, performance in 2022 so far. Again, we'll we'll delve into that in a second. U.S. government bonds, this is all maturity down around 12%. Gilts um, down 28%. So, uh, again, a huge underperformance there. Uh, European government bonds down around 17 and Swiss government bonds down around 12. So, um, uh, you know, still some uh, underperformance there. Investment grade down 18, uh, high yield down 14, and converts down 17. So really no respite in terms of fixed income markets. And currency, the dollar is up around 17% on a year-to-date basis as the Federal Reserve embarks on one of the most steepest moves in U.S. interest rates uh, that we've ever, ever suddenly witnessed. And then oil is only up 8% now, down 9% in September. And gold down 8%, industrial metals down 20%. And soft commodities, for those of you who thought that Russia and Ukraine would lead to high soft commodity prices, down 12% on a year-to-day basis. So really quite challenging markets. And uh, what's really sort of um, 
struggling for investors this year is there's no respite in in most in most um, markets uh, it's it's been you know relatively negative so very few areas uh, have uh, actually you know given you positive returns uh, probably the only positive returns have been in hedge funds so uh, global macro is sitting on uh, positive returns on a year-to-date basis something like two to three percent equity hedge is down 4.7 and um, we're also seeing uh, you know other sort of hedge fund areas like uh, relative ARB, they're still suffering down roughly around 10%. So, yeah, it's been a very, very tough um, market environment. Now, um, moving then on to sort of Q4 and the outlook. So m- maybe, Daniel, you've you've been, um, you know, you've got some very interesting charts that uh, we saw a few, or I saw a few days ago around the performance of bond markets, you know, so far this year. But uh, maybe you want to enlighten us in terms of uh, you know what we you know what what we've seen in performance terms in bond markets, and obviously what we think the key drives are going to be as we move forward. Uh, absolutely, Mose. So I think um, you know there's no official bond index that measures returns going back beyond 1969, which is still quite a long period of time. But in order to calculate bond returns going back further, um, you can sort of back it out of bond yields, and there is much longer time series on very long dated bond yields. So you can uh, get data going back to 1872 and using bond yields and movements and making a few quite simple assumptions, you can um, uh, extract what bond yields would have been within the market over that period of time. So going back to 1872, it's interesting that the year to date has unequivocally been the worst on record. Um, And not just by a little bit either, but by an awful lot. So for the year to date, um, uh, this is the US Treasury market um, uh, down uh, about 16 and 17%. The next worst year was in 1987, and uh, uh, the US Treasury market was down about 9%. So it's nearly double the scale of the demise this year. So it's really been quite brutal. And I think you know, that, that's really been a challenge because, of course, um, people buy bonds because they're meant to be quite safe. And yet this year, um, you've had the scale of negative returns and the sort of volatility that you would have expected from much riskier asset classes. So it's been a really tough year. Um, I think in terms of the market outlook, you know, it's worth noting a few things. I think the the setup is actually quite good from here. So market timing is always incredibly difficult. But if you think about valuations where they are now much more attractive than they were at the beginning of the year, we know that aligned with that positioning is very negative. We know that investors are um, already positioned in a way that reflects um, a highly risk-averse attitude. And uh, that, in turn, is reflected in a very negative sentiment. So when we look at indicators, things like the AAII bull and bear indices, it tells you that investors are always uh, are currently very nervous. And that's a pretty normal pattern for these sorts of markets. Often these sorts of indicators tend to be coincident. But nonetheless, it does represent a, a pretty good setup. I think on top of that, I would just add a fourth one, which is just to note that September um, seasonally is a very weak month, at least for US equities. So um, again, uh, going back um, uh, to 1969, the data shows that uh, September is the only month of the year that on average has delivered negative returns. All other months have delivered positive returns. So overall, it, it is a, a good setup from a contrarian perspective. But I think you know, the big challenge is what is going to be the catalyst 
to bring this all together and cause a market rally. And I suspect it's just going to be our old friend, the Fed. So I suspect, as per normal, you know, there's the old saying, like, don't fight the Fed. Um, and I suspect um, it's going to be a similar uh, catalyst on this occasion. So as and when we get more of a uh, more clarity in terms of the peak in Fed rates and the likely path of Fed rates over the next uh, 12 to 18 months, that I think will be a catalyst for um, an improvement in all those factors that I just outlined. So just as a reminder, some of those four sort of um, key points really uh, in that, uh, you know, valuations, you know, compared to where they were at the beginning of the year or actually any point of the year uh, are, you know, quite uh, reasonable. The investor positioning is exceptionally negative in terms of um, uh, uh, sort of how investors are positioned in the market, very underweight in equities, high levels of cash, uh, and that is obviously, and, and also in bonds, there's a relatively um, kind of um, uh, sort of uh, you know, decent setup in terms of um, investors. We've got the third point is really about seasonality. Q4 tends to be a pretty good time. And then finally is really the Fed setup and in terms of what the Fed will will uh, you know look to crystallize as we uh, as we move forward so um, and I guess Daniel we've got this sort of strange situation where you know weak data is positive and strong data is negative so you know we just had a, um, a relatively weak ISM data in fact a pretty weak print relative to consensus and relative to last month which clearly shows that the medicine that the Federal Reserve has imparted on financial markets uh, and other central banks as well uh, is um, you know is starting to work. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think it was interesting to note last week, Lael Brainard, who's the the vice chair of the FOMC, she subtly, but I think importantly, started to make comments suggesting that the Fed is you know starting to think about policy being um, either at a point where it's uh, outright restrictive or pretty close to that point. So she started talking about the risk being two-sided. She started talking about uh, the risk to global financial stability. So these are the sorts of conversations and the sorts of noise you'd expect to come out of the Fed when they think they're getting uh, pretty close to the top. So more rate hikes likely, but they're clearly thinking about what to do um, once they've imparted the degree of tightening that they think is appropriate. Those comments are actually quite interesting, certainly in the context of uh, you know, UK uh, fiscal policy um, and uh, some of the, uh, I, I guess, um, inadequacies of the Bank of England, certainly so far in terms of uh, raising interest rates. But also, I guess, uh, noise, um, certainly today uh, in, uh, in in financial markets, the noise in Credit Suisse seems to be exceptionally heightened. And uh, one of the things, uh, I guess, both uh, Daniel, you and I know is that, you know, um, the pivot from the Fed, be it stop raising interest rates or certainly guiding to more dovish interest rate movements um, uh, relative to expectations as well as outright cuts, always come with a with a crisis in mind. Absolutely, Mose. And I think you know the, the normal pattern that you'd expect to see is that uh, you'd expect to see a peak in the default cycle, and and that would probably be associated with. Uh, further widening of spreads. So, you know, perhaps Credit Suisse is going to be the sort of poster child of uh, this default cycle. Perhaps it'll be another company. But I think that's also a key part of that setup. And we're probably not quite there yet. Spreads have widened, but we haven't really seen the default cycle pick up very much. Just on the default cycle, because I think it's quite interesting because 
you know, normally we see employment stats, um, you know, um, starting to get worse, um, initial jobless claims, um, uh, unemployment data, and that leads then to default rates starting to uh, go up. I guess what's strange is certainly in this cycle, we haven't seen that this time around, right? So what's your, what, what's your thoughts as a traditional analysis would would hold in that you know unemployment rate is one of the big big elements that goes into a default pricing model but this time around we actually don't have that no we haven't at all um but i think you know it would be reasonable to expect to see an increase in unemployment rate that's just what happens and the, the normal pattern of course is one where companies start to experience cash flow problems as the economy slows and then the first thing they do is they scale back on capex because that's relatively easy and then uh, one of the things they typically do later in the cycle is they start to lay people off because actually hiring people and firing people is quite expensive for them. So it's usually a last resort. And clearly, we're, you know, we're not quite there yet. I think people have short memories and have forgotten uh, the distortions that came to bear during COVID. So obviously a huge amount of stimulus that um, at that time that also frustrated the relationship between unemployment and default cycle. And I just wonder if on this occasion there's going to be a similar bias. But I do think that, you know, almost regardless that, um, you know, quite possibly this economic cycle is going to be relatively mild. So the market impact obviously has been very painful, but it feels like in the US at least that the uh, economic slowdown or even if it's a recession is likely to be relatively mild. Just to wrap up, let's quickly do a tour of uh, of the major regions in terms of what are the, you know, uh, uh, major challenges for, for each of those at the moment so let's maybe start with the uk um obviously um bit of a u-turn on policy with respect to tax um uh, and uh, and obviously bank of england is is likely to be very hawkish as we as we move forward here yeah a big challenge for the uk is that the market is very nervous about the credibility of both the bank of england and the government at the same time and that's quite an unusual combination and credibility is something that takes years to build up but it takes only moments to destroy as we saw with the most recent mini budget so i think that's the problem though now that they have uh, put a question mark in the market about their credibility it's going to take the government and the bank of england time and effort to uh, rebuild it and um, that you know likely means they probably have to overshoot where they would have gone otherwise so yeah very tough for the uk and yeah, complicated, of course, by ongoing Brexit challenges. So, um, obviously, risk premium uh, for UK investment assets has, has gone up you know, rather dramatically. In fact, it's probably been high for some time, certainly in the equity market. Um, so, bond yields certainly kind of marching higher. For me, one of the big indicators was that gilts trading through US treasuries. Uh, to me, I think that's... Uh, that was inevitable, um, um, and funny these things you you expect them to happen, but they don't happen until a lot later than you think. So, um, so I think um, uh, that to me is kind of one indicator. But also pound at lows that we haven't seen since the eighties. Um, you know, do you know if the Bank of England is able to get its credibility back, um, and you know the government has already done a few U turns. You know the pound probably is due for a bit of a a rally, uh, uh, you know here, or at least a bit of stabilisation um, in terms of the 
um, in terms of the currency. So Dan, let's move on to Europe. Um, I guess, you know, slowdown in European growth certainly is inevitable. Also tackling inflation, particularly gas. You know, some people, you know, um, liken the gas market problem similar to the Lehman crisis, which seems a bit extreme to me, but, um, you know, uh, bit of a quandary for the ECB. Yeah, very tough. I mean, ECB policy is always much more complicated anyway than other central banks because they're not a traditional lender of last resort. They have to coordinate across uh, all the nations that um, make up the euro. So it's, yeah, it's always a much more complicated uh, situation. And I think the current, um, yeah, current events in Ukraine make it even more complicated. Uh, yeah, energy policy, on the one hand, has sought, uh, obviously quite rightly, to de-emphasize the reliance on Russian energy. But in the short term, that's tough. It looks like uh, storage facilities are pretty full and looks like Europe will probably get through this winter um, without too much rationing. But I think thereafter it becomes more difficult, particularly if you know, we continue the problems with uh, the Nord Stream pipeline. So I think Europe yeah, is, is very tough. In terms of rate expectations, do you think their ECB rate expectations are too high at the moment, do you think? The expected path of tightening for the ECB is quite slow, but they are expected to tighten for longer than the Fed. So the Fed's done obviously quite a lot quickly. And I think there is a chance that the ECB never manages even to uh, meet those lower expectations because you know, every time they try to do it, they're faced with these massive downward pressures on activity, which ultimately will be disinflationary. So whilst the energy shock at the moment has resulted in big price increases, we've already seen a rolling over of energy prices. And of course, um, you know, high energy prices act like a tax and ultimately and result in demand destruction. So I think a very tricky situation for the ECB. That's even more so than normal. Let's quickly cover the US. Obviously, we talked about the um, policy environment. Uh, you know, weaker data is probably going to be good, probably going to be for the markets. Uh, we upgraded our treasury bond and investment grade weightings in our asset allocation last week um, as we uh, you know, to take advantage of some of those very unusual opportunities that have been created, as uh, Daniel alluded to earlier. So uh, certainly more positive on that on that front. Um, I think one of the big challenges on the dollar is going to be uh, where the dollar continues to 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 move higher. It does look overvalued, certainly on things like traditional valuation factors. Um, and the key thing is is that I think as we move forward, the other central banks, such as the ECB or the Bank of England, even the Bank of Japan, could well be still raising interest rates when the Fed has indeed stopped and even starting to think about cutting. Uh, and I think that could be the inflection point on the dollar. Uh, any thoughts on that, uh, Daniel? Yeah, I think um, obviously dollar has been incredibly strong. That reflects the pace and scope of Fed tightening, uh, particularly relative to the other central banks, as you just said, Mose. Um, and uh, it's also happened, of course, as the market has you know, it's risky assets and government bonds have both sold off very aggressively. So I suspect that um, all these factors will come together at once. In terms of the four factors you mentioned at the beginning, I suspect that as and when they align and we get a catalyst, then uh, probably at the same time you'll see you know, the dollar weaken, the dollar come off. That will be part of you know, a return to the risk on trade. So moving on to uh, China... Um, I guess we've been disappointed that China has done more. I guess we're, we're now entering into the the sort of I, I, I guess sort of confirmation of President Xi 
coming through and, and maybe lots of policies. We saw at the weekend uh, the, the Chinese are adding more stimulus into the real estate market. Um, what, what are your thoughts? When is the best time to start being kind of more constructive, do you think, on, on that or, or remain pessimistic for the foreseeable future? I think it has been disappointing for China this year. They're one of the few countries that has the wherewithal and historically also the appetite to loosen policy during such periods. So they have done a bit, but it's been a bit disappointing in terms of the scale of the stimulus applied. I guess you know if you add it all up, all, you know, all these relatively small policies, then together it's you know it's a little bit more impressive. But um, it, you know, with China, it's always hard to know what's already been announced and is just a regurgitation of existing policies and, and what's a new policy. It can be quite hard to extract that. So it has been disappointing. I think you know, in China, in, in some respects. Um, you know, the policy is a signal in itself. In other words, because the data can be so unreliable, you know that if the Chinese are loosening a lot, then probably the, the macro situation is quite difficult. So at the moment, the, the fact that they're not loosening by very much probably tells you it's a bit weak, but it's not as weak as uh, perhaps some outsiders might think. And of course, you know, they're trying to deal with things like COVID and the policy, uh, sorry, and the, the property market and trying to deliver that. So lots of complicated things going on in China and all this against the background of a closed capital account. It'll be interesting to see um, one of our assertions that the Chinese economy could well be the one of the stronger ones in 2023. Um, but, uh, you know, they're going to have to really move forward on the policy front if they were indeed going to uh, to uh, enable that, that feat. Um, I, I think, um, you know, that, uh, for China... Um, as I said, they sort of, if the economy is really bad, then they would have loosened a lot more already. So it's probably less bad. But I think also, you know, they're probably, the inflationary impact is probably more than has been captured in the headline data. So there is, uh, you know, there are some rumours doing the rounds that part of the reason they haven't applied more stimulus and a part of the reason why they are still imposing quite strict COVID lockdowns is to try to cap inflation. It's all part of, um, yeah, it's more about inflation than it is about COVID. Well, I guess we, we, no. we probably will never know that for sure. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they've certainly opened up Hong Kong uh, now to travel. So uh, you know, certainly I think the, the COVID policy initiative will certainly start to turn a lot more positive uh, than they have done over the last uh, you know, couple of years now. Um, I guess India looks like to have, to, to have a much more favourable policy mix. And there's a bit of a housing boom that's returning there. And certainly we are seeing kind of better noise uh, and policy noise out of India. And obviously they're taking all that cheap Russian oil, uh, which is obviously you know, managed managing to uh, put a cap on some of the um, um, uh, you know, current account deficit challenges they always have when oil prices certainly uh, go up. Uh, moving on to Japan, I guess in some respects policy is boring. Uh, they're not really changing very much. Um, there are some positive catalysts there. Obviously, earnings continue to ratchet up as a result of the 24, 25% odd depreciation in the currency. But, you know, Japanese economy has just opened up. Um, and with that weak yen, they do expect, um, um, you know, travel, tourism, all those things to pick up you know, dramatically, as well as the, the Japanese reopening trade, which has probably been delayed for a few uh, you know, it's been probably been delayed relative to certainly our expectation of the last, you know, six to nine months. 
Um, anything further to add there, um, Daniel? This year, Japanese equities have been very strong in local currency terms, but you got killed on the currency. Um, now, it's always hard to know uh, the extent to which markets anticipate these things or the extent to which um, they will move in unison with uh, things like policy. But the fact that the Bank of Japan has very firmly committed to yield curve control and capping the 10-year Treasury, I think, uh, does continue to augur well for the market. And then, you know, you just need to think about if you're happy to take on the currency risk or not. As I say, this year has clearly been a bad thing. Finally, um, uh, emerging markets, we had um, some some positive noise from uh, Brazil uh, overnight as a result of the relatively close election of uh, Bolsonaro uh, and Lula and uh, a much uh, and Bolsonaro also did much better in the, in the Congress vote, which you know certainly led to um, the the sort of the thought that even if Lula does win, uh, he will have to pivot on a very um, sort of centre policy rather than a very left policy. So certainly, I think that has a has a positive development for um, the um, for the emerging markets. I think. Um, uh, some of the emerging markets are looking at the inflation in developed world and thinking that they're actually better off than the inflation that's been seen in developed world, which uh, certainly uh, augurs well for emerging market companies. Yeah, no, indeed. I think, um, as you said, you know, Brazil has done real, India has done pretty well this year. Um, so there have been pockets of success. Um, I think for emerging markets, what's going to be important is just thinking about the commodity reliance. So are they net commodity exporters or net commodity importers? Obviously, Brazil is a net commodity exporter, so this year has been uh, a pretty good year for it in, in many respects. But I think uh, that's going to become more challenging. You know, there's this old saying about uh, buy the rumour, sell the fact, and that may well be the case with Brazil. So you, you can imagine it's not impossible that um, uh, the next um, round of the elections, which is in a month's time, that coincides with um, you know, some sort of peak in optimism around Brazil, particularly if global economy is rolling over and, uh, and commodity prices continue to soften. No, exactly. That's certainly one to watch out for uh, in the next sort of kind of six to nine months in terms of how that does. But certainly for now, the economic positioning seems to be uh, relatively good. So, um, so in summary, um, obviously it's been a tough uh, nine months to the year. Uh, very, very little respite, whether you're uh, um, uh, you know, a commodity investor, a bond investor, equity investor, you pretty much have very similar outcomes you know, this year. So it certainly hasn't been easy, but um, we're certainly now entering into uh, Q4 period, which is uh, you know, seasonally much better. Uh, I think a lot of the hard work or heavy lifting for financial markets and the uncertainty that markets have seen uh, will will certainly start to have an impact, and we're already starting to see that with the weaker ISM data that we saw this afternoon. Uh, so, uh, you know, certainly uh, Q4 is starting on a much more positive footing for all asset classes, and let's just um, uh, see how that develops over the coming weeks and months. You know, whether we do start to see a bit of the softening of the rhetoric, and that allows the Simmons law to soar in in the summer. Uh, you know, a decent um, uh, rally into into the into year end, and I think that a lot of that will will be determined by the Fed and whether the Fed and other central banks start to ease off on the uh, on the pedal on the interest rate tightening uh, pedal uh, than they have done so far uh, this year. Uh, of course, 
we will be with you on that journey over the coming weeks and months. Um, we will start next week with our Insight podcast and we have uh, an excellent lineup of um, uh, people coming on to the uh, Beyond the Benchmark show to navigate this time. Uh, so with that, Daniel, thank you very much from Jordan. Um, enjoy your conference. Um, I'm sure it'll go very well. Uh, and in the meantime, everybody will speak to you again next week. Uh, enjoy your week ahead. Thank you.